For the next eight weeks, we are going to be making our way through the book of 1 Samuel. And that is an Old Testament book that is concerned with a key period in the history of the nation of Israel. And we're going to start right there in the beginning of the first chapter. So uh, if you happen to grab one of our guest Bibles, we'll be uh, towards the front of the Bible this morning up on uh, page 224. Now, 1 Samuel chronicles the life of Israel's last judge, Samuel, Israel's first king, Saul, and the preparation for Israel's greatest king, David. And like many of the Old Testament books, it's filled with characters, people that our kids right now are, are possibly learning all about in Sunday school and in children's church and names, people that you learned about uh, when you were a child, characters making choices of consequence, some good and some, well, not so good. This morning, of course, we're going to begin right where the book begins with a man named Elkanah and his two wives, Penina and Hannah, the former of which uh, was able to bear many children for her husband, and the latter of which, of course, was unable to bear any. Our our focus will naturally be on Hannah because that's the focus of the story. And we're going to look at her situation in life. We're going to look at the sacrifice that she made. And if there's time, we'll we'll look briefly at her song there at the beginning of chapter 2. In her story, we'll see that, as is often the case for the people of God, The providential purposes of God not only incorporate, but often rest upon hopeless and impossible situations. Okay, so keep that in the back of your mind, this idea that the providential work of God in the world and in the lives of his people not only incorporate, but even rest upon hopeless and impossible situations. Look in 1 Samuel here in chapter 1. We're going to look at the beginning of verse 3. It says, each year... Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Peninnah and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Peninnah would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Peninnah would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? Now, believe it or not, Hannah actually has a lot of good things going for her. Most notably, of course, she's actually, believe it or not, (laughs) in opposition to what you may be feeling after that last verse just now, she's actually married to a really good man. Elkanah had wealth and social standing, and we know that by the way he's introduced here in the first couple of verses, which we didn't read, but you can read that sometime. This is a, an introduction that would have indicated some degree of standing, and, and he, he, he was a, a person of significance for his community. But more importantly, it's clear that Elkanah was faithful to Yahweh and, and his family. At least three times in, in the passage here talking about him, it is, it is repeated that Elkanah went to Shiloh, and that, of course, is the place where the tabernacle was during the period of the judges. 
He went there, we're told in the text, multiple times to make his sacrifices and to keep his vows to the Lord year after year. Okay, so this, this is a faithful Israelite. This is, this is a man who is walking in the covenant of God. And it's rare to find a man like that in a time such as this. But there he is found year after year. It is the rhythm and the pattern of his life. And he takes his family with him. He's concerned not only about his own place in the, in the covenant people of God, but his whole, his whole family's place in the covenant people of God. And, and in his relationships, you can see there's a, a genuine compassion and, and concern for his wives, particularly Hannah. I mean, at this point, what more could a woman ask for? He's got it all, doesn't he? He's got standing. He's got wealth. He's faithful to the Lord. He's concerned for his wives. He's, he's a really good husband. And boy, does he let her know it there in verse 8. Let me, let me add a little bit of, we'll call this a pro tip for you husbands out there. Never say that to your wives. <laughs> What's wrong with you? You've got me. What more could you ask for? And I don't think that's, that's in his heart, but it kind of comes across that way a little bit on the page there. Now, Hannah has a lot going for her, but Hannah also has a couple of problems, which are right there in the passage we just read. Problem number one is her own barren womb. And problem number two is mouthy, fertile myrtle. <laughs> She's got issues. It's bad enough that Hannah can't have her own children, but she has to endure the constant torment of the woman that she is forced to share her husband with. In truth, both women have reason to dislike the other. In all likelihood, Hannah was Elkanah's first wife. So he, he was married to this woman he loved. She's not able to bear him children. And as was the custom, over a certain, after a certain period of time, it becomes apparent that she's not able to bear him children. It was customary for him to take on a second wife. Now, there's a whole history behind that practice. I'm not going to get into it now. And it's not permission for you guys to consider doing anything of the sort, Okay. But that was the situation in the time. And so he added Penina to bear him a descendant. And so you have these two women who are sharing a man, one of whom uh, is able to produce, produce children, drawing the, the, the ire of the other, and the other who is the apple of her husband's eye. So you can see both of them had reason to resent the other. Hannah resented having to share her husband with Peninnah and her taunts and her fertility. And Peninnah had, uh, she resented Hannah because he had her husband's adoration and favor. But there's a deeper dimension to Hannah's distress than, than just these things. And it, it's helpful uh, to keep in mind, and it's even essential to understanding the text, the, the religious context of the day. True Israelites would never have forgotten that God's promise to Abraham was what? That one day, blessings would come to all the nations through his descendants. Descendants. There, there's a deeper factor at work here than having to share a husband. There's a deeper dimension to this than not being able to bear children. There's a deeper issue that's on Hannah's mind and heart that's the source of her distress than having to listen to mouthy Peninnah all the time. I suspect Hannah's deeper cry is her inability to play a role in God's covenantal purposes for Israel. And even more, as was mentioned twice in the verses that we read, the real culprit behind her barrenness is who? Did you catch it? 
Look, what does verse six say? Look at your verse six. I want everyone who has a Bible open to look at verse six. Who does the writer of this book tell us is the, is the one responsible for Hannah's barrenness? It is the Lord. Now, how do you factor that into your theology? How, do, how, does, that, how does that weigh on you as, as a person of faith who knows that God has, has commanded humanity to be fruitful and to multiply. And, how, and when you place yourself in Hannah's shoes and you put yourself in her position and you think about what she's going through and, and you know as a true Israelite, her greatest gift would have been to have a role in God's covenantal purposes for Israel. And yet because God himself, she is unable to play a part. How would you feel in that situation? Peering beneath the surface, no, it's, it's not hard to see that Hannah has genuine reason to be distressed. And no one would blame her if her circumstances, all of which are beyond her control here, had resulted in a, a bitter, angry, doubtful heart. No one would be surprised if, if she was tempted to lose confidence in the, the goodness and in the power of Yahweh. But where do we find her? in our text as we read through. Where, where does she go? In, in the midst of this crisis, in, in the midst of all this sorrow and distress, not, not just a one-time thing, but an ongoing thing, year after year after year, where does she go next? Well, we find her in the tabernacle. And we find her deep in her anguish. But her tears are accompanied by prayers. And that's our first real insight into the character of Hannah. Look in verses 10 and 11 with me here. This is after one of the times they'd gone and offered the sacrificial meal, and Eli was in the, in the tabernacle, and then it says in verse 10, Hannah was in deep anguish, she, and she had gone to the sanctuary by herself. She was in deep anguish, and she, made, and, she, and she was crying bitterly. She prayed to the Lord, and she made this vow here in verse 11. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. And he will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. Now, I wonder if anyone in here is, has ever been guilty of making a bargain with the Lord. <laughs> have any of you, don't raise your hand, have any of you ever really bargained with the Lord? I remember a time, I think it was in late high school, early college years, um, where I came down with a, a stomach bug that was about the worst kind of sickness that you can imagine. Just days upon days of just misery and pain and suffering. And I'll never forget lying in my bed, writhing in pain, begging God, if you would just make me better. I will be a better Christian. I'll read my Bible more. I'll pray more. I'll be kinder to people. I'll stop doing bad things. And on and on and on, the begging and the pleading and the bargaining went. None of you in here I know have ever done anything like that in your entire life. And, you're, and you know that I'm just ridiculous. And you would be right. I am ridiculous. It's ridiculous to think that way. Um, and I know none of you have ever done that at all. Now, honestly, at some level, that's not an entire, entirely terrible thing to do, is it? Right? I mean, at the heart of, of, that, of that sort of gesture is, yes, a, a, a belief that God is real. 
right? I, I'm not just praying out into space hoping that someone out there hears. I know God is real. I know God is personal. I know God is concerned with the cares of our lives. I know God has the power to heal. And after all, God wants us to bring our cares and concerns to him, doesn't he? I think it, it brings great delight to the heart of God when we present to him you know, the needs and, and the desires that we have, however self-centered or self-focused they may be. But let's not be mistaken. That is a very self-focused prayer, isn't it? It's a very, it's like, it, I will do the things that I should already be doing, God, if you do this for me now. You see how, how wrong that is fundamentally? Where that places God sort of in the hierarchy of our relationship? Rather than God being the, the sovereign Lord of heaven's armies, as Hannah is praying, this is reducing God to sort of the, the almighty pharmacist, right? I, he's got the prescription for the thing that I think I need in this moment in time. And so I'm going to go to him, and, and if I say the right words and offer the right types of things and, and, and give the right sort of gestures and have the right attitude, then he'll give me the thing that I think I need in this moment. But that's not what God is there to do. He's not there to barter with us. And I don't think that's Hannah's mind and heart at all. It really, it begs the question, what is she really praying for here? Yes, she's praying for God to move in a way that relieves her of the misery of Peninnah's taunts, for sure. But once we factor in the, the broader context of, of, a, of a woman in this point in time, in the life of Israel's history and the situation as it is, I think it's apparent that she more deeply is praying that God would incorporate her into his redemptive purposes for the world. Her request ultimately is not for herself, is it? It's for Yahweh. What is she asking for? Someone that can come and provide for her needs one day when she's old and gray? Someone to come and, and, and be sort of like the token source of her pride that she can parade around and show everybody just how handsome of a son she's able to produce for her husband. And a lot of parents view their children that way. They're, they're not there for their children. Their children are there to serve them, to, to increase their standing, to give them something to be proud of, something, someone, someone that they can showcase that would impress people, someone that can fulfill their own long-lost dreams Maybe they were, were living out some sort of dream in their youth and they weren't able to accomplish it. Well, my kid will do it. And so they're living their lives vicariously through their children. It's this warped backwards way of child rearing that they're to serve us and meet our needs and provide for our desires. And that's not Hannah's prayer at all. Her prayer is, Lord, give me a son that I in turn can give him to you. And it's hard for me to even wrap my mind around that. And yet, somewhere in the midst of that, I see the, the perfect example of the, of the Christian parent. Where you can find Elkanah offering ceremonial sacrifices according to the law, which is right and good. He's a good Israelite. Hannah can be found making spiritual sacrifices from the heart. And I wonder, how should her example inform my own perspective on, on things, reality, parenthood, the, the church, the gifts of God, how I pray, how I relate to him and him to me. Are my requests for my own benefit according to my own will or are they for God's benefit and according to his will? Now Hannah is neither the first nor the last woman in the Bible 
whose barren womb lay at the center of God's greater purposes. You remember the time of the patriarchs. You had Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. The time of the judges. You have Manoah's wife. You can go fast forward all the way into the New Testament. And, and even Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist himself. All these were, were women whose wombs were barren. And yet that somehow played a central role in the covenantal purposes of God. But I think we as readers, when we come to the beginning of 1 Samuel and we consider sort of the the religious historical context of the people of God at this time, I think when we come to this, this chapter in the Bible, that we, the readers, are to see Hannah's womb and at some level as a snapshot of the condition of the nation as a whole. I mean, this, this is coming out of the time of the judges. And what defined the people of God during the time of the judges? Was it their strong faithfulness and obedience to, to Yahweh? No. No, Israel is spiritually barren. They are dark. They are empty. There's no life to be found in their midst. You see it in, 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 even in the priests and in, in the people serving in the tabernacle. Everywhere you look, there's darkness. Israel was spiritually barren because of her unfaithfulness. I mean, even as if we were to continue reading from the text here, you'll see that as Hannah is in the tabernacle and she's, she's in her distress, she's crying out to the Lord, but it's, it's, it's in her mind and her heart. She's not actually vocalizing her words. Her mouth is moving because she's praying earnestly to the Lord, but the words aren't coming out. And, and, and yet... The priest himself cannot even detect prayer taking place. That's how out of tune even the leaders of Israel are with the spiritual life of the people of God. In fact, when Eli sees what Hannah's doing, what does he suspect of her? Ooh, she's had a little too much to drink. Look at this crazy person. How dare she come here in this sacred space inebriated? And so Eli has a beef with Hannah And it's because he's just so out of touch. And it's a snapshot of the spiritual life of Israel. Hannah's life is marked by darkness all around her and darkness within her. But you and I know that it is often in the darkness where God begins to move. His greatest works, starting with creation itself, Begin with nothing. With nothing. Hopelessness and helplessness are not barriers to God's design. They may be dead end roads for you and me, but not for Him. Anytime God's people are without strength or without resources or without hope, His hand is poised to move. Maybe not the the way, maybe not the timing, maybe not when you and I want it to move or how we want it to move, but it's always with a greater purpose. And I believe that in in her heart of hearts, Hannah knew this to be true about her God. And she allowed her distress to drive her to the throne of the Lord of heaven's, Heaven's armies, who doesn't just rule over the universe, but is near to the brokenhearted. Even that of an obscure woman in the hill country of Ephraim. She believed, and this is key, and it's one of the few things, if you have to write anything this morning, I hope you write this down. She believed 
that no situation is too big for him and no person is too small for him. No situation is too big for him and no person is too small for him. Well, as it turns out, as the narrative progresses, Hannah in short short amount of time becomes pregnant. In verses 19 through 28, if we were to read through the chapter there, we'd see how you know, she, she had her son. She named him Samuel, which means I asked the Lord for him. And after uh, he had been weaned, she made good on her promise. She took him back to Eli and gave him over in service to the tabernacle. And, and I could, I, I mean, really, we could take that little chunk there and we could camp out there for a while. I think there's a whole sermon to be preached here about how the greatest thing a parent can do is offer God's gift of their children back in service to him. Not that God wants you to leave your kids here for me to raise for you. Please do not do that. In fact, if you want to take one of mine with you when you go, you're welcome to do that this morning. (laughs) They're pointing at each other. (laughs) They're pointing at each other. Or maybe they're both pointing at Becca. I don't know. I saw some fingers pointing there. (laughs) <laughs> Look, I, I'm not saying that, uh, that we're supposed to follow Hannah's exact practice, that you should come to the church and, you know, after your child is weaned and leave them for the pastor to raise. That would be absurd, and I would, I would call CPS on you or something. I don't know what I would do, but don't do that. What I'm saying is that in Hannah, we see a pattern, a principle at work that should speak to how we view as we've already been saying this morning, how we view our child rearing, how we view children, and what our role is in raising children as a family and as a church family, right? It says in, in the original, I don't know, I didn't take Hebrew in seminary, but good people who know Hebrew have, have taught me that what it says in the original text here is that Hannah made over to Yahweh Samuel. That's the literal expression made him over to Yahweh, which is another way of saying she presented Samuel to him and gave him to the Lord to serve at his disposal, completely at his disposal. She, she isn't holding on to control. She doesn't want to have a hand in determining his future. She's not there to kind of oversee how things are going. That's, there's no like sort of helicopter parenting here, right, where she, she says, you know, I trust into the Lord, but I'm going to hover around and watch everything and sort of maintain sort of control from behind the scenes, right? That's not Hannah's posture at all. She made him over to the Lord. She, she gave him, she literally left him in the place of worship. And to our knowledge, that perhaps, well, it wouldn't have been the last time she ever saw him because we know they came back every year, but she's not, it's not some empty gesture, is it? This is, she's fulfilling her vow. God, I will give him back to you completely. And you will do with him what you will. And I think that should be the ultimate goal in all of Christian child rearing. To so love and care for and dis- disciple our kids that they would be optimally ready and available to the Lord when the time comes to really, truly let them go. That they would be released to his service completely. In fact, no gift of God in your life is ultimately for you. How does that 
factor into your theology of God's gifts in your life, the good things that come from him. You know, we, we like to, to think that when God gives us something, it's ours, and we hold things with clenched fists. God has blessed me with a great job, and I make lots of money. Oh, thank you, God, for this gift. God has blessed me with opportunities. God has blessed me with relationships. God has blessed me with fill in the blank, and we're thankful for it. And we want to just sort of hoard these things to ourselves because we think they're about us. But we were never meant to be sponges of God's good and perfect gifts, sponges of his grace. We were meant to be conduits of it. We, we hold things with an open hand. Even your own salvation, friends, is ultimately not about or for you. The greatest gift that you can have in this life is to be made right with God, to have life that never ends. And yet, what's its ultimate purpose? Well, it's so that God could be glorified. That by your life, his kingdom would expand. His reign, his rule would be established upon the earth in your heart. That the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. That is why you are incorporated into God's redemptive plan. It's never for you. You, you benefit, of course. <laughs> you receive, of course. But God pours into you and he pours through you. Hannah knows what James, the epistle writer, would say a thousand years later. In James 1.17, what does he say? Every good and perfect gift comes from where? Well, God the Father, who never changes. He's the same in Hannah's day. He was the same in Abraham's day. He was the same at creation. He's the same in the time of Jesus' day and in our day and for every day to come. He never changes. He's the same God from beginning to end. And every good and perfect gift in your life comes from him. But Hannah also knew the next verse. Which says what? James 1.17, I'm sorry, 1.18. God chose, we're talking about choices, here's God's decision. God chose to give us the gift of new birth through his word. And we out of all creation, became his prized possession. God chose to give you and me the gift of life through his son. To what end? That we would belong to him. Even your salvation is ultimately not for you. It's that you would be a gift unto him. Your whole life that you would be his possession. What comes from him is ultimately for him. And the greatest gifts in all of life are those that catch us up in the cosmic redemptive purposes of God. And I think that's Hannah's deepest desire. The thing that she was seeking most was for God to do just that in her life. Now, if we had... If we had the time, I knew we wouldn't, but I, I was hoping maybe, but we don't. If we had time, we would read, we would read her song. You know what? I'm going to do it anyway. Because God's word is more important than my commentary on it. Let's look at her song, and then we'll make a few quick remarks and hopefully not go too long. Chapter 2, verse 1, then Hannah prayed. Now keep in mind, this is her prayer right after handing over <laughs> her son to Eli. 
My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Stop acting so proud and haughty. Don't speak with such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows what you have done. He will judge your actions. The bow of the mighty is now broken, and those who stumbled are now strong. Those who were well-fed are now starving, and those who were starving are now full. The childless woman now has seven children, and the woman with many children wastes away. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and others rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, placing them in seats of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's, and he has set the world in order. He will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. No one will succeed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to his king. He increases the strength of his anointed one. If we had time to really dive into this, we'd see a few things. First, we would see language here, and maybe you picked up on some of it already. Language that recalls Israel's miraculous exodus from Egypt. So she's drawing upon God's covenant faithfulness in the past, his mighty power to deliver and save from the past. But we would also, if we took time to really dig down, and maybe the Holy Spirit was already connecting the dots in your own mind and heart, we'd see that in, this, in the language, in the sentiment, in the, the theology of this prayer, there's language that looks ahead. Language that will one day be echoed by another woman with an empty womb. A virgin who would conceive a child by the miraculous hand of God. And while Hannah's child would prove a key participant in the covenant blessings of God, Mary's child, oh, Mary's child, he is the fulfillment of the covenant purposes of God. And Hannah's story as a whole, in more ways than one, points us to the even greater story of Jesus. At Shiloh, Hannah wept and and, and prayed and asked God to incorporate her into his redemptive purposes. But at Gethsemane, Jesus shed tears of blood as he solidified his commitment to the completion of God's redemptive works. Hannah prayed for a son that he might be offered back to God. What was Jesus' prayer in John 17? Father, give me glory that I might return it to you. You see the pattern at work here. Give me a son, I will give him back. Father, glorify your son that the son might glorify you. In both cases, The trial of one meant the salvation of many. For Hannah, it meant the salvation of a nation. But for Jesus, it meant the salvation of the whole world. The song of Hannah, indeed the the whole narrative concerning her in this crucial part in Israel's life, points the reader to this truth. That God's work in her life is a reflection of the tendency of his ways. In other words, he always acts according to his character. She knows how he will act in the present based on what she knows of how he acted in the past. And that is a conviction of how he will act in the future. And the same hand that performs mighty works in delivering a nation is the hand at work in the humble life of the faithful individual. He will be at work in you. 
He's not just concerned with the large affairs of mass groups of people in consequential moments on the stage of world history. No, he cares about every aspect of your life. And the same hand is at work in both to carry out his good and perfect plans. But also, Hannah's micro-salvation anticipates Christ's macro-salvation. It's a sample of the way God works, isn't it? Of how his kingdom will come in all its fullness. God's greatest works begin in the dark. Whether it's the dark of a virgin's womb or the dark of a tomb. His saving help for her is a foretaste of his saving help to all who call upon the name of the Lord in their time of distress. So you and I can be sure, church, that in every tiny catastrophe in your life, or maybe every great catastrophe of your life, in every source of distress in your life, every issue in your life that is causing you sorrow or lament or causing you or tempting you to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to doubt his plans for you, in the, the cries of your heart, perhaps day after day or year after year, you can be sure of this. In every single one of those situations, this is true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always going to act according to his character and according to his nature. He knows your sorrows. He hears your pleas. And though he may not answer your prayers in the way or the timing that you asked for them, you can be certain that your problem is not too big for him and you are not too small a person for him. The providential purposes of God in your life not only incorporate, but rest upon your own hopeless and impossible situations. Every tiny work of deliverance is a token, a down payment of the full deliverance for those who, per- who persevere in faith to the very end. Will you do that today? Will you persevere in faith today? Will you choose Will you make the choice, no matter what you're going through or what your hardship is or no matter how difficult it may be, will you choose today to trust the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to offer all that you have and all that you are to him? Will you allow him to incorporate you into his greater work in the world? That's the challenge for you and for me. Pastor Jeff, you'd come up. We're going to pray, and then we'll sing a closing song of response. Lord, we thank you for Hannah's example. Thank you for the principle that uh, undergirded her life and uh, the, the, her character that, that was behind all of her choices. There's so much to be learned here, and we just barely scratched the surface of it, but I'm praying that, Holy Spirit, you would be connecting the dots in our hearts, that you would be speaking not just between all the lines, but in every line, that every word and between every word, we'd hear the voice of God, taking the truth, this objective truth, and applying it subjectively to where we are in life. Help us, in whatever darkness we find ourselves in, to believe that your greatest work often starts there. So there's hope. There's hope in our sorrow. There's hope in our suffering. There's hope in our distress. Maybe not for God to answer our prayers exactly as we pray for them. But there's hope for you to do what is good and what is best and what ultimately carries out your 
your better purposes in the world. Lord, incorporate us into those purposes. May we as individuals and as a church be key players in what you're doing right here on Rabbit's Corner and in our region and around the world. We pray for your glory and for your sake in Jesus' name. Amen.